Uh, I Amen. realized uh, just this week, I was sending Todd a text about this morning, and I, I realized the first time I sent him a text was in about May of 2012, that we've known each other since about April of 2012. We actually met each other, not here in North Carolina, we met each other at a uh, church planning conference down in uh, Orlando. That's where church planners go to plant churches. They go to Orlando and then come back. That's what we do, right? That's right. So Todd and I met uh, at that point, I've had the opportunity to, uh, to spend some time uh, with he and Don. And I was just thinking after the first service, there's really only one thing that I've realized that I don't like about Todd. Just one thing in the time that we've spent together. He's a Florida State fan. That's the only thing, right? And many of you don't like him for the same reason, see? Just want to get that out of the way so that there's no animosity. But in spite of that, Todd's uh, going to come this morning, and as Jerry said earlier, he's uh, going to tell us, uh, again, one of these uh, stories uh, that Jesus told. So make sure you make Todd feel uh, welcome here this morning. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. All right, go Knowles. Anybody with me? Wow, nobody. Not even my family was there for me on that one. Ouch. Oh, oh there you go. We got one. Awesome. We got it. I didn't, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that because I really didn't. But uh, good morning. We're uh, excited to be here. It's been awesome for us to just get the opportunity to hang out here with you guys at Northwest for the last few months. And uh, this morning, I wanted to start off by sharing one of my painful childhood memories that some of you might be able to identify with. So going all the way back to second grade, I received this really painful, difficult diagnosis. I went to the doctor and found out that I had a condition called myopia. Some of you might otherwise know that condition by its street name, nearsightedness. Yeah, I know, it was tough. It was a tough diagnosis. Uh, I really struggled with it. But you know what that meant? It meant that I had to have glasses. And I see a lot of you in the, here this morning, you're rocking the glasses, you're looking good. But listen, this was back in the day before glasses were cool. This was before Big Bang Theory made being a geek cool, okay? And just because you wear glasses now, no longer means that you're not cool. But back then, that's exactly what it meant because they didn't have cool glasses back then. They had nerd glasses. That's all they had. It's like, you know, you get one option, one choice, nerd glasses. And it was like the brown plastic rim glasses that everybody with glasses, at least in second grade, had to wear. And uh, if you turn your head to the side, they break. At least that's what I told my mom because that happened a lot. Me and my brother, man, we kind of got into it a little bit. But um, so, you know, my social life growing up, second grade on, wasn't all that it could have been. And I blame the glasses because that's my convenient excuse. But my parents wouldn't let me play sports because of the glasses. And so I missed out on that, that kind of growing up. My brother, he was athletic, got to do all the sports stuff, and I just went to his games. I know it's, man, it's painful to even talk about. But when I got to eighth grade, things kind of changed for me a little bit. I convinced my parents to let me play football. And the only reason I was able to convince them to, to let me play was because they had these really super cool glasses that you could wear in your helmet that wouldn't get broken. So uh, my mom sprung for the glasses and, and uh, let me play football and I was actually okay. I did pretty good. I actually made the starting team on defense because I just really liked to hit people. I think it was all the aggression built up from not being able to play sports growing up. And so 
Loved hitting people, was kind of good at it. And so uh, they put me on the starting team. And my, my coaches even nominated me to be captain for the, one of the upcoming home games. So I was pumped. And you can imagine, like, going from, like, zero to hero, at least in my mind, overnight, was a complete change of pace. I mean, the girls started talking to me, at least a couple of them. And I got to kind of sit with the cool kids, you know, get to go uh, hang out at the cool kids table, that kind of thing. And so my social life started to take off and I started to gain some confidence. You could even say that I got a little bit cocky to the point where I started kind of running my mouth a little bit to people and probably went a little too far and kind of ran my mouth off to the wrong people so that one day I was walking back to my locker from a pep rally. We had a game that night. And um, as I was walking back to my locker, something smacked me on the back of the head. I mean, just went bam. And you can imagine, like you get smacked on the back of the head by something, you're gonna wanna find out what that was. So I did that. I turned around, tried to figure out what this is and something else hit me from the other side and then something else hit me up from underneath. And um, I had no idea what was going on. I think at that point, I don't remember any of this. People told me what happened later on. I went down to a knee and and uh, my friends came and tried to help me out and took me up to the front office. My mom came and, you know, I had, my mouth was kind of bleeding a little bit and, and uh, I had no idea what had hit me. So I'm in the car on the way home. My mom is, you know, trying to make sure I'm okay. She's just planning to take me home. But um, on the way, I started like kind of just checking my mouth. I was like, man, this just doesn't, something doesn't feel right. I don't know what's going on here. And then uh, my mom was just asking me some questions like, okay, so what classes are you going to end up missing this afternoon? And I started telling her about classes that I had last year. And she was like, I don't think you're quite all there. We should probably go get you checked out. So we went to the hospital. And by the time we got to the hospital, my memory was about two minutes long which was a lot of fun for my parents because I kept asking the same questions over and over and over and over again and couldn't remember anything. I was literally Mr. Short-Term Memory. Couldn't remember anything. And so I found out that I had a concussion and um, you know that was from the first blow to the back of the head. And then on the left side had a uh, fractured jaw and uh, also another fracture on the front. And so found out later that these guys that took me down really didn't like me, so much so to the point where they didn't want to just take me down. They like had master locks that they had, they put their finger through and like, you know, really did a number on me really good. And so I learned a couple of very valuable, important life lessons from that little situation. Number one, if you run your mouth off to the wrong people, you're probably going to get jacked up. That was like my personal life lesson from that. Anybody with me? No, you didn't have that kind of experience? Okay, well, that was me. That was my part of my experience. But another part of it, the second important life lesson I learned is a kind of a cliche. You've probably heard this before, but it goes like this. And you could probably finish it with me. Attitude is everything. There you go. A few of you were like, I'm not sure if I can actually talk in church. It's okay. I promise. So yeah, attitude is everything. I kind of learned that the hard way, as you can imagine. That was really not a fun experience at all. But Attitude is a big deal. Attitude affects a lot of things in our life. It impacts our relationships in a big way. And if you don't believe me, I wanna encourage you to go home and try this this week. Like students, we've got all the students hanging up down front. So you get home from school sometime this week and you're probably gonna be a little bit hungry. If you don't think attitude's a big deal, just say to your mom, yo, mom, dinner now. 
See how that goes for you. Just try it. I dare you. Or uh, husband, you know, you're, you're sitting at home this week watching some TV, throat gets a little dry. Yell at your wife and say, woman, give me a drink now. Probably not gonna go very well. And uh, if, if you happen to have a lead foot, like I tend to have sometimes and you get pulled over by a police officer and he asks you, like police officers often like to ask, do you have any idea how fast you're going? Just say to him, do you have any idea how big of a hurry I'm in right now? And see how that works out for you. So as you can see, attitude is important. It makes a, it's, it makes a big difference, and uh, especially in our relationships. And we're going to read this story out of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 this morning. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. And we're going to read this passage together. And we're going to really begin to see how attitude impacts a whole lot more than we think it does. And so I want to set this up. You've got the situation where Jesus is out here hanging out with the Pharisees and his disciples and who else, who knows who else might be hanging around, but um, definitely his disciples are there. And, and as is usual, the Pharisees are, are not far off. They're probably kind of hanging around the, the fringe, trying to hear Jesus and use something that he says against him. And um, you might also know that the Pharisees, they're really religious guys and really proud of it. And they flaunt it in people's faces all the time and, and uh, really strut their religiousness to people. And so they're there, they're listening. And, and uh, now Jesus starts to tell this story. And it's really kind of interesting because in the very first verse, Luke gives us a little spoiler and tells us right off the bat who this parable is for. So here's what it says in verse nine. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple complex to pray. One a Pharisee and another, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so as we kind of imagine this scenario, and you, you can see in your mind's eye, if you're thinking about this, that You've got the Pharisees hanging around. You've got the disciples. And so Jesus starts into this story. But before we even get started, we get the little spoiler that says that this story was intended for those who trusted in themselves and their own righteousness, and they looked down on other people. We probably know some people like that, don't we? Anybody? Let's do this. Point at them right now and stare at them. It's you. You're the, no, that, that would not be a good idea. But um, we all know somebody like that, but uh, chances are good. And when we hear that at the beginning of this passage, we, we tend to kind of like breathe a little sigh of relief, like, glad that's not me. Oh, I'm glad I'm not one of those guys that thinks so much of himself and uh, looks down on other people. None of us probably thought to ourselves, oh, that is so me. I do that all the time. I, I should really stop doing that. We, we don't really think that way. We instead think, man, I go to church. I'm a good person. I give money. I volunteer. I even go to life group. I'm good. People like me. So no way that 
it could actually apply to any of us, right? Not so much, right? So as Jesus begins to tell the story, he talks about how, here we go, we got two men going up to the temple to pray. And they go up to the temple because the temple is literally above everything else. Elevation-wise, it's higher than everything. And so they go up to the temple to pray. And that's not that big of a deal. People did this every day. They didn't have to go, just like you didn't have to come to church this morning, but you're here. So that's awesome. And, and so here were these two guys. And, and one of the things that's interesting is he points out there's, there's these two guys that are the same place at the same time doing the same thing, but with a completely different mindset, a completely different attitude. And so then he introduced them to us and he says, one of them is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. This week was April 15th. So what do we think about tax collectors and the IRS? They're our favorite, right? (sighs) No, not at all. Um, And same kind of applied back then. So every great story has a villain and a hero, right? I mean, think about it for a second. You've got Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Anybody excited about episode eight coming out? Oh yeah, it's gonna be awesome. And seven? Oh, I'm way off. All right, sorry, my bad. Seven. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead. I'm like, seven's for people who are wanting what's next. I want what's after that. But anyway, so yeah, episode seven's coming out later and, and that's gonna be awesome. But you got Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. You've got uh, Batman and the joke. The villain. Batman is the good guy and the villain is the Joker or a plethora of other people. But then you've also got like back in my day, He-Man and Skeletor. Pumped to see him in a car commercial recently. That was awesome. Or how about this one? G.I. Joe and Cobra Commander. Yes. Now we're, all right. And for those of you who are like, New to the scene or newer to the scene, and none of this really makes much sense to you. How about Emmett and Lord Business, right? Come on, Lego movie, come on now, all right. So when Jesus introduces these two people and he says, here you've got a Pharisee, most people are probably looking at that going, yeah, the Pharisee, and like, these guys are it, they're religious, they got it going on. And you got the, the uh, Pharisees that are probably like hanging out in the background, like fist bumping each other, like, yep, that's right. We're here, that's what's up. You wish you could be like us. And then he introduces the tax collector and you can probably just hear this collective groan, like, oh no, we hate tax collectors. And, it, and again, imagine the scene because who's one of Jesus' disciples? Matthew, who used to be a tax collector. He's probably thinking to himself, oh my gosh, not again. Man, come on, you're selling me out. But we've got these two guys and, and typically people are thinking we've got the Pharisee as the hero and, and the tax collector as the villain. And so then he goes in and he starts talking about, okay, here's, here's how these guys prayed, which I think is really interesting that we get a perspective from Jesus on what our prayers sound like to him. This is pretty crazy. Like we get God's perspective on what our prayers sound like to him. And so here here goes the Pharisee. He starts to pray. And so he takes his stand. And and what that kind of means is like he found a place where everybody could see him and everybody could hear him. And and he could be kind of celebrated in that environment. And so he he made his way down front, found himself a, a nice good place to stand where everybody could see and hear him. And he starts to pray. Some translations even say that he prayed to himself or about himself saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You could even say that I'm not like those people. And then he starts to list them. Greedy, 
unrighteous, adulterers. And if he hadn't been pointing fingers up until now, he finally does. And he does. He, he looks at the tax collector and he says, or even like that tax collector, thank you that I'm not like them. And we kind of, um, we look at that and we go, well, well, at least he wasn't, right? At least he wasn't greedy or unrighteous or an adulterer or a tax collector. Those aren't bad things, right? It's not bad that he wasn't those things, but what was bad is that he was so proud about not being those things. And sometimes here in the, in the South, in the Bible Belt, we get kind of proud about the, our I don't list, the things that we don't do. Like I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't cuss, and I don't date people who do. Like uh, that's like this old Southern phrase, like I don't drink, I don't cuss, I don't smoke, and I don't date those who do. Daggone it. <laughs> Got to add that on there. That's important. But we get kind of proud of that. We wear it as a badge of honor. I don't do those things. I'm not like those people, right? Do we do that? Anybody? Maybe it's just me. All right. But then he goes a little bit further, verse 12, and he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I make to the church. Man, that's serious commitment. I mean, how many of us can say this week that you fasted twice? Anybody? Like, I didn't even fast once. Like, I'm pretty sure I didn't miss a single meal. And, and so I'm just kind of confessing that to you guys this morning. Like, I'm not that religious. Like, I'm, I'm not really in the habit of fasting as much as I should be. And so this guy, man, he's super religious. He fasts twice a week. That's awesome. And he gives a tenth of everything he gets back to the church. Man, I wish we could all say that. And I know Brian and the staff of Northwest wish all of us could say that because not only would the building be paid for, but every need would be met that we knew about. Man, that would be amazing. That would be awesome. And so this isn't a bad thing that he says that I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get, but, but kind of picture the scene again. So this is the end of his prayer. He said, thank you, God, that I'm not Greedy, I'm not adulterous, I'm not unrighteous, and I'm not like that tax collector because I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything I have back to the church. And so you can just imagine this for a second. Like he, he finishes his prayer and it's kind of like one of these drop the mic moments, right? Like deal with that. It's like, how you like me now? And, and so he, he kind of walks off and he's done. Like, prayer over. And I'm thinking back to like when I was in youth group and we did these like prayer circles. I don't know if you guys do this anymore, but like at camp, especially we'd have like, you know, prayer and we like go around the circle and it'd be like a little competition to see like a pray off, like who could pray better, you know, like is an unofficial unwritten kind of thing, but like, that's kind of what we did. And so somebody, you'd be going around and the whole time you're thinking, man, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? It's got to be good. It's got to be good. I got to get some amens. I got to get some, mm's. you know, I, I got to get some, like some, some yeah, Jesus going on with my prayer because, you know, that's what it's all about, right? And then it gets around to you and, or, or right before you, the, the super like religious guy in the group like totally kills it and drops the mic and everybody like during the prayer, they're like, mm, amen, yes, Jesus. And like all of them have been used up and it gets to you and you're like, I got nothing left. I, I don't know what to say after all that. And that's kind of where we are with the Pharisee and the tax collector. He, he does this, he drops the mic, he calls out the, the tax collector, and now it's his turn. And here's what the tax collector prays. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest. So imagine this, he's, he's hanging out in the back. He found a seat in the back row. 
because he didn't feel worthy to even really come in with everybody else, whereas the Pharisee found his place down front. The tax collector hangs out in the back, and not only is he hanging out in the back, he's hanging his head and he's beating his chest, and, and that was a symbol back in that time of, of just incredible shame. He was so ashamed of what he'd done that he was just beating himself, just beating his chest, hanging his head. Man, I don't even deserve to be here. And here's what he says. A very simple, short prayer. God, turn your wrath from me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Seven simple words, but super powerful compared to what the Pharisees prayed. I wanna point out three quick things about this prayer and how it was different from the Pharisees' prayer. Number one, the tax collector had an attitude of humility. We see that in his, just in his posture. He didn't even have to say anything and we can tell that this guy has humility because he's hanging out in the back and he's hanging his head and he's beating his chest and he keeps his prayer super short and he calls himself a sinner. That's kind of a big deal that he would refer to himself that way. I'm a lawbreaker. Whereas the Pharisee referenced himself five times. Five times. He didn't have a long prayer really either, but compared to the tax collector, it was kind of long and, and he referenced himself five times. Whereas the, the tax collector referred to himself once. And the one thing that he had to say about himself is, I'm a sinner. Second thing that he did was he admitted his need. When he called himself a sinner, he admitted that he needed God. He needed something that he didn't have, something that in himself he couldn't provide. And then the third thing that we see is the difference between these two prayers is that he made a request of God. One thing that the Pharisee didn't do in his longer prayer is one thing, really the thing, that the tax collector did in that prayer. And he said, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. And I know sometimes at church, we kind of throw around these words like mercy and grace and justification, and we don't really fully understand what they mean. But when the tax collector asked for mercy, what he was saying is, I deserve to be punished. I deserve it. That's what I've earned is punishment from God. And so he's asking God, God, have mercy on me. Withhold your just punishment from me. You deserve to punish me, but have mercy. I admit that I'm a sinner. The Pharisee didn't ask for anything from God. As a matter of fact, he kind of had an attitude of entitlement. Like I deserve, look what I've done. Look what I haven't done and look what I have done. You owe this to me. You owe me to have a right and proper standing with you. And sometimes we can get that kind of attitude but then Jesus kind of drops a bomb after showing us these two different prayers. I mean, most people standing around, they probably wouldn't have caught most of what we've just been talking about. They probably would have just, you know, seen the Pharisee and, you know, he drops the mic and then the tax collector, he, he does the whole like, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they're like, yeah, he needs to be standing in the back of the church. Look at what he's done. He needs mercy. He should be praying for that. So like everybody listening to this is like, so what? This is probably pretty normal. It's a pretty typical scene that, that happens. And so then Jesus comes to the end of it and he says, but check this out. It wasn't the Pharisee that went home justified that day. It was the tax collector. 
And you could probably just hear a collective hush go across the room like, what? Are you, are you serious? The tax collector? No way. I mean, did you hear what the Pharisee said? I mean, did you hear how good he is? How he followed all the rules and did everything right? Did you hear that? And then you got this dirty, stinking, lousy tax collector that steals everybody's money and everybody hates. And he went home justified? What? The reason for that, Jesus gives it in the last part of the, the last verse that we just read. And it says this, because whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Guys, one of the truths that we need to understand here this morning is that there's no way we could ever be good enough. God's standard is perfection. And no matter how good we get, we can never get to that level of being perfect before God. To where we follow all the rules, we do everything right. We've got the right list of don'ts. We've got the right list of things that we do. It'll never be enough to where God will say, you know what, based on that alone, based on your righteousness, your goodness, your rule following, I accept you into my presence. It's never gonna be good enough. That's why Jesus came. And Ephesians chapter two talks about this, that it's not because of our goodness, because of our works that we're saved, it's because of our faith in God's grace. Our faith in the finished work of Jesus. He finished it and we can't really add anything to it. So our good works are really worthless when it comes to our status with God. Our good works, the good things that we do and the bad things that we avoid don't elevate our presence with God. They don't get us a better standing. As a matter of fact, those verses that I just referenced in Ephesians chapter two talk about where works fit into the equation. They fit on the backside after the finished work of Jesus when we're saved in a relationship with him, that we've taken that step of faith and trust in him, that only he can save us. We can't save ourselves because of our works. The evidence, the fruit of our salvation are the good works. We're created by God to do good works. So out of our salvation flows those works. So the works don't cause our salvation. The works are the result of our salvation. We can't work our way into heaven because if we could, Jesus died for nothing. I mean, think about it for a second. Jesus died for nothing if we could work our way into heaven. If we could be good enough, then Jesus wouldn't have even showed up. He would have just sent us some kind of letter, some kind of message to say, hey, be really, really, really good. And don't screw up. So you can get into heaven. Message over, have a good day, see you later. But he didn't do that. He became the message, he came as God in the flesh. Look at this with me in Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Well, you don't have to turn with me, but I'm gonna read it for you. And, and this illustrates how Jesus completely flipped this paradigm from if you wanna get ahead in life and you wanna be exalted, then smack other people down because that'll elevate you. That's really kind of how the world worked back then and a lot of how it kind of works today in some ways. But instead of that, Jesus said, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Jesus not only flipped the paradigm, but he set the pace. Check this out. And in Philippians chapter two, Paul starts in and he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having unity, 
having the same love, being full, being in full accord and of one mind. And, and here's where it gets really strong. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another way translations put this is have the same attitude. Here it is, going back to what we talked about earlier. Attitude is everything. Humility changes everything. And we're about to see that right here. He says, if you have the same humility as Christ, the same attitude that Jesus had, here's what that would look like. Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to hold on to or something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, there it is again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus sets the pace for us when it comes to humility. It says, look guys, humble yourselves and you'll be exalted. And let me show you how that works. He stepped out of heaven. And became human. And if that wasn't enough, he became a human who was a servant. He was born in a stable. His dad was a carpenter. He had no privileges in life compared to what we have today. Not only did he step out of heaven and become human and become a servant, but he became obedient all the way to death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. The kind of death that nobody deserves except the worst of criminals. And if we realize this morning, that's exactly what we are and that's exactly what we deserve. But here's the good news this morning. Jesus finished the work for us. He got on the cross. He humbled himself all the way. He didn't hold anything back. And he set the pace for us to follow in his footsteps, to have that same kind of attitude, that same kind of mindset of humility, because that genuine humility changes everything. C.S. Lewis wrote that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. A lot of times in humility, we, we, we feel like we gotta beat up on ourselves. Like, man, I stink, I'm worthless, I'm terrible, I'm the worst person that's ever lived. And there might be some truth to all that, but C.S. Lewis says, it's really not even about that. It's just not about you. And when we get that, that's when humility begins to take root. And we start thinking about others and elevating them above ourselves. It changes everything. It changes our relationship with God. In James chapter four, verse six, it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when we are proud like the Pharisee was, this pride comes between us and God. It, it drives a wedge between us and him. He can't accept us when we have this attitude of pride. But when we come before him in humility, he blesses us with grace. And we say, God, I need you. I, I, I got nothing without you. He, he invites us in and gives us a seat at the table. 
So not only does it change our relationship with God, it strengthens our relationships with other people. And I hope you've seen that to be true in your life. But the converse of that is also true. That while humility strengthens our relationships with other people, pride destroys our relationships with other people. And I'm sure you've seen that bear out in life, in your life. I've seen it bear out in my family. I have family members that today do not speak to each other because of pride. One will not say to the other, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Those can be some of the most powerful words ever spoken. But if pride is in the way, they'll never come out of our lips. Pride can ruin relationships, but genuine humility can restore them and relationships can flourish. It can happen in your marriage. It can happen in your parenting. It's okay, parents, every once in a while to look at your kids and say, look, I screwed up. Will you forgive me? At work, with your boss, with your coworkers, just try it and see how it works. Students at school and in sports, instead of strutting up and down the field or flaunting your grades in people's faces, step back and have a little humility and just see what that does for your relationships. 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us this, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And as we saw in James 4, 6, he repeats this phrase, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you this morning, but I need all the grace I can get. I need all the mercy I can get. And so, What would it look like for you this week to actively put on, clothe yourself with this attitude of humility? To see others as more important than you. To take a step back when you might even deserve to take a step forward. What would that look like for you at school or at work or with your family or with a friend Is there a relationship that's broken because one or the other won't say to the the other person, I'm sorry, I messed up, will you forgive me? Maybe those words need to be spoken into a relationship this week. And I just wanna challenge you today that as God speaks to you, if you would just respond in obedience and step out in faith and and try out what Jesus commands us to do and, and what he illustrates for us and how he set the pace for us, to do this, that if we would humble ourselves, he will exalt us. But if we exalt ourselves, he will also humble us. So I wanna invite you as the band comes forward and gets ready to lead us in this last song, maybe the best thing we could possibly do in this place this morning is while this last song is going, is to just bow our heads in humility before God and say to him, Lord, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And it could be that this is the first time you've ever done that. And that would be awesome because that's the first step in a journey of following after Jesus and having him completely radically transform you from the inside out and change absolutely everything for you. We talked about earlier, attitude is everything, but genuine humility changes everything. It changes our relationship with God. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see and treat others. And so I challenge you and encourage you this morning to clothe yourselves with humility. What is that gonna look like for you? And as we sing, 
cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, we thank you for helping us see what genuine humility looks like. Because you showed us by demonstrating it for us with your life. And I pray, God, that you would challenge and encourage each of us this morning to step out in faith, to follow in your footsteps, to clothe ourselves with humility. And as we do that, it'll transform the way we see ourselves. It'll transform the way we see you and the way we see and treat others. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never cried out in humility to you, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, that this would be the moment that they would do exactly that. So Lord, have your way with us in this moment as we respond in faith and obedience in Jesus' name.